This is Close Up. I'm Kelly Carter. And this one is for the culture, y'all. My guest today is Ernest Dickerson, and he was a cinematographer on several of Spike Lee's most iconic films, like Do the Right Thing and Mo' Better Blues, before writing and directing the cult favorite, Juice. It has been 30 years since the seminal coming-of-age story, a film that followed four friends growing up in Harlem, and it was the film that made rapper Tupac Shakur a movie star. You gotta be ready to slow down, stand up, and die for that stuff if you want to, Juice. That film came one year after John Singleton's Boys in the Hood, which was another brilliant piece that three decades later, we also still celebrate. And here's how the two films and the two directors align. They both took brave steps in casting rappers, Ice Cube and Boys and Pac and Juice as leading men. Fast forward to this weekend's close of a very competitive award season, all signs are pointing to Will Smith for the best actor victory for his work in King Richard. If that rapper turned actor wins, he'll be the first rapper to win an Oscar for acting. And I'm not sure if we would have gotten here without a movie like Juice or Dickerson. We talk about that and the one project that he and Spike Lee tried to make happen but couldn't quite get off the ground. And he teases the big biopic and the huge names attached to it that he's currently working on. We also discuss his new HBO Max series, DMZ, which is an adaptation of the hit Vertigo comic, which is also produced by Avery DuVernay and stars Rosario Dawson and Benjamin Bratt. What we had was so good. We were family, but that was pre-war. And he tells me why he loves the thriller horror genre so much. And as we always do, gonna let you guys inside of my group chat. This week, we're bringing back Vanity Fair's Anthony Bresnikan and the Kirby critic herself, Carla Renata, to talk about the rapper-to-actor transition that many talented artists have taken, the power of the underdog at the Oscars. You will soon hear exactly what I did there, and our final Oscar predictions. But first, here's my conversation with Ernest Dickerson. I want to start here. Juice turned 30 years old this year, and it featured a lot of really great performers very early in their careers. I'm just going to list off a couple of people. Samuel L. Jackson, Queen Latifah, Omar Epps, and of course, Tupac. Walk me back uh, three decades. Why was this a story that you wanted to tell at that time? Um, well, actually, the script was written nine years before we actually made the film. Really? Um, yeah, it was uh, Gerard Brown and I wrote it. I think it was probably around uh, 81. Mm-hmm. And uh, it started really kind of from a project I always wanted to do. I always wanted to adapt uh, Claude Brown's book, Man, Child in the Promised Land, mm-hmm. into a film. Because his growing up in... Harlem in New York in the 1940s and everything. It reminded me a lot of my growing up in Newark, New Jersey, uh, in the housing project in the 50s and the 60s. So, you know, just always interested in, in things that kids do. And when I was, you know, going to Howard University, I was working part, I was working summers at the, uh, at the post office. And you always had to be there at, you had to check in before seven o'clock in the morning. So I'm taking the bus into work and it's dark. 
And there are these kids hanging out on the bus who looked like they had been out all night long. And I just wondered what kind of stuff they got into. Hmm. And so I just figured that's a great, that's a great story for, uh, yeah. for a film. But didn't actually write it until uh, years later. But then Gerard and I were also really becoming alarmed with uh, how guns were proliferating more and more in the neighborhood, how they were getting into the hands of, of younger and younger people. And so we wanted to tie that in. So the idea was to actually to do a, uh, a film noir mm. where the main characters were 16 and 17 years old. Yeah. And uh, that's how that started. Why did it take so long to get the film made from when you first uh, wrote it? Well, everybody told me nobody's ever going to want to see this movie. Really? They, yeah. I mean, I took it around. My agent said, forget about it. Nobody, it, it's, it's, no, nobody wants to see this. It's too dark. It's going to be too violent. Mm. You know, and nobody wants to see this. So it basically sat on the shelf for, for all those years until Gerard uh, started auditioning a new uh, agent. Mm. And she wanted to see what he had written in terms of uh, uh, screenplays. And he gave her, you know, he was a playwright. And so he gave her the plays that he'd written, but the screenplay that, that we worked on together, Juice, he showed her that and she said, God, what's going on with this? And he said, nothing. She says, why? He said, he said, because Ernest took it around years ago and nobody expressed any interest. As a matter of fact, he was totally discouraged. So she said, I bet you I can get it made. So she took it around to several different production companies mm. who all of a sudden wanted to get the, you know, wanted to make the movie. Yeah. But, um, you know, when Gerard and I first did it, we wanted to debut ourselves as a writer-director team. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the production houses that our script wound up going to, <laughs> they gave me a list of directors that they thought would be right for the, for the film. And my name was the last one on the, on the third page. <laughs> so... You know, so then we started getting notes from the studio. Yeah. There was one company, uh, you know, that was, you know, making some pretty big movies. And uh, they wanted to buy it. And uh, they wanted to make it. Uh, but they thought it was too dark. And they wanted to turn it more into a comedy. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so the notes that, they were, that we were getting, Gerard and I just, you know, we just sat down. We said, no, nah, man, you know, this is going to turn into something we don't. We won't even want our names on. So even though we could have made a lot of money by selling them the script, we said, thank you, but no thank you. We took the script back. Mm. And then finally I was contacted by a young, a young man, David Heyman, who, a young British guy who was looking to uh, make his first film as a producer. Wow. And it was Juice. Wow. Later on, he went to make the Harry Potter films. I was going to say he went on to make <laughs> Harry Potter <laughs> films. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was his first film, too. That's amazing. Um. I heard you say that 80% of directing is casting. What was it about Tupac that um, helped really bring Bishop to life? You know, what made him the perfect choice for, for that role? Well, you know, a lot of, it, it took a long time to find him. A lot of guys that came in to audition, uh, they thought that if they uh, just went ballistic, you know, really gave me a good going ballistic, playing the scene, uh, would do it, but uh, it wasn't working. It wasn't working. We were really having a hard time. What Tupac brought to it, he realized the pain in Bishop. Look at this. The brother finally decides to stand up like a man and throw down. Too bad Raheem had to die first, huh? That his whole attitude, mm -hmm. everything comes from pain. Look, I ain't 
ain't never gonna be And you less of a man than me, so as soon as I decide that you ain't gonna be so be it. Found out later on that Tupac had trained in acting in the Baltimore School of Performing Arts, and um, he was just brilliant. He was a student of human nature. He studied people, even when we were shooting the film. Mm. And he always had a notebook, mm. and in between setups, he would always sit down and write. And I like to think that he was uh, writing what eventually became uh, his music. Yeah. Um, you know, you've worked with a lot of artists over the years, Tupac, obviously, Snoop, DMX. Um, and there's this interesting connective tissue, I think, between all of those guys, um, because they also happen to have had or have currently, um, in the case of Snoop, promising acting careers, too. Why is it, in your opinion, that rappers translate so well into the world of acting? Um, talent comes in so many forms and so many it comes from so many places and something that you know movies have always gone to musicians singers people you know back in the back in the days won't you please sing it for me now oscar will play well i you see like frank sinatra you know going into acting i couldn't sleep awake last night the first sound film Al Jolson. And I was alone for years. What fate was kind. And, and the jazz singer. So um, what's interesting is that, you know, uh, I think performers who are used to bearing their soul or exposing parts of themselves to an audience, uh, mm. to cameras, uh, to a microphone, for some of them, you know, doing that uh, to a movie camera, you know, works naturally. And and you know, with rappers, it's just a they're they're musicians mm -hmm. who are put in a performing situation in front of a camera. Yeah, and uh, and you know, it depends upon the roles that they have. You know, I think rappers are better best when they when they when they're playing a character that's something like themselves. Mm. You know, it didn't cost much money to make Juice, but it did pretty well at the box mm -hmm. office. Yeah, it did. What were your expectations? of your career as a director and as a writer with that kind of initial success of Juice? What what was the next thing you thought naturally was going to happen um, for you in your career? I was going through a transition because at one point I actually thought I would be able to bounce back and forth between cinematography and directing. Mm. Because after I did Juice, that's when Spike announced he was doing uh, Malcolm X. And... When Spike and I first met, doing the autobiography, adapting the autobiography of Malcolm X to, to cinema, was one of our dreams. It's one of the things we talked about. So when he said he was going to do Malcolm X, I was not going to let anybody else shoot that movie. <laughs> do you know where you came from? What's your name? Malcolm Little. No. That's the name of the slave masters who own your family. We are a nation, the tribe of Shabazz lost in this wilderness called North America. After the emotional experience of doing Malcolm X, photographing that, which was a very emotional experience for, for Spike, for me, I couldn't see myself getting that excited about another film that I wanted to just photograph. Mm. I wanted to be more involved in the filmmaking process. And so I started looking for more projects to direct. Yeah. And direct you did. You've uh, directed a lot 
of thrillers, um, some even verging on horror, uh, film and television episodes of Dexter and The Walking Dead and so on. Mm-hmm. What's the part of you that draws you to that genre in particular? Because you visited, you know, the thriller space um, several times over the course of your career. I love thrillers. <laughs> I grew up with horror films. I, uh, the earliest film that I can ever remember seeing is a horror film. Do you remember what it was? Yeah. Get John Carter for me, please. It was a movie called It Came From Beneath the Sea about a giant octopus that attacks San Francisco and destroys the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, The year it came out, I I was probably around four years old. Okay. I remember vividly seeing it at a theater in Boston. I had gone to Boston for the summer and I saw it and I remember it was on a double bill with another movie that had these zombies. You know, what we call the creature with the atom brain. And, you know, growing up, um, my cousin would always take me to see movies like The Tingler, mm. House on Haunted Hill, um, you know, Rodan, you know, the Japanese horror films. <laughs> those were those were cool stuff. So, you know, I grew up seeing them. And um, I was a bit of a nerd kid, for sure. And, um, you know... Uh, Big fan of Alfred Hitchcock, how he's able to structure his stories. I want you to go as quietly as possible. Do not make a sound until I tell you to run. I love stories that have ordinary people who are put in an extraordinary situation and then watching how they how they deal with that. What Hitchcock was great at was he was always trying to reach what he called pure cinema. Mm. And pure cinema is... If you were to show a movie to anybody anywhere in the world, without dialogue, they would know exactly what was going on. And this is using the camera, using the visuals. And that to me is, um, I think, something that really affected me. One of the reasons, one of the things I really wanted to explore as a director mm. is using the camera. I mean, I come from camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I was a cinematographer, I was a photographer. And so... The camera has always been my primary storytelling tool. And uh, I like to try and do what he does. I like to be able to tell a story visually so that if somebody turned the sound off, they would still know what was going on. Mm. When you look at a Hitchcock film and somebody's dealing with something, you can actually see on their face. You can read what they're thinking right there. And that to me is is, is quite beautiful yeah. You know, when you can do that, when when you don't have to have bubbles going up and <laughs> telling you <laughs> what what was going on in somebody's head or, or have like a voiceover saying what I was really thinking was this, 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 and that. You can tell on the face, you know, how the actor's playing it, what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that to me is, is the essence of cinema. Mm. Your current project is HBO Max's DMZ. And for me, it is hard not to watch that and not think about the time and space that we all find ourselves in. I know that this project was greenlit and got underway before the pandemic, but it feels like such a reflection, I think, of our worst fears about what we're going through right now. Did any of that and and the chaos of the pandemic play a role for you in saying yes? Well, I've always, not only a reader of horror, but also science fiction and speculative fiction. And, uh, I think some of the most powerful literature we've ever had is speculative fiction. You know, books like 1984, yeah. which uh, was really prescient about some <laughs> where we are today. 
Mm-hmm. And um, to me, DMZ is a cautionary tale, especially now where we have so many people that are talking about having a, a 21st century civil war, Yeah, you know, dividing the country again, a civil war. And uh, that's what DMZ is about. What would happen if there was a civil war in America and Manhattan was no man's land, with no access to the rest of the world? Um, and it's a process that if certain things were allowed to happen in this country, I could see actually taking place. So for me, speculative fiction is a way of dealing with the, the, the terrors of the future mm. and possibly showing how to avoid it mm. and letting people see what that is so they realize that we should not go there. That should not be where we take this country. Uh, that's one of the main reasons that attracted me to it. I, I love stories that deal with the speculation of, of where we are going as, as a people, politically and as a species, mm-hmm. and uh, what the, the dangers of the future hold for us. Yeah. And I want to just clarify, Ava shot the first episode of this, and I remember she just barely finished it mm-hmm. right when everything had to shut down. So then it was just shut down for as long as Hollywood was shut down. And then you come back in to yeah. pick up the rest of it. What was it like coming on that DMZ set for the first time um, and working with Rosario and really just a phenomenal cast? Yeah, it was it was cool. It was really cool. Um, I've been a big fan of Rosario's for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, she is... The best cheerleader you could have on your set. She comes in. She's so positive. She goes, you know, she said, okay, let's do this. All right, ready to go, ready to go, ready to go. Oh, I'm looking for my son. We got separated on day one, and it's why I came to see you. So you haven't seen him or heard of him, have you? Her energy is so infectious. It just, it just grabs you, you know, and, um, and she's just a beautiful, beautiful lady. And Ben Bratt, you know, I think it was a chance for Ben to redefine himself because I think he went places that he never had a chance to go to as an actor, mm-hmm. uh, playing Parker. They call this a demilitarized zone. This ain't no neutral territory. This is abandonment. I don't think Ben actually ever had a chance to play Stone Cold Gangster. <laughs> you know, always think of Ben immaculate in a suit. You know, yeah. looking like uh, uh, a lawyer or a, or a businessman, but um, but here he has a chance to play somebody who's been damaged in some very fundamental, profound ways by military service, mm-hmm. and now he's in a situation where he is vying for control of Manhattan, mm-hmm. and um, and he's ruthless, and you know. Actors love playing bad guys, you know, because <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, I guess as an actor, you can go places where you as a person would never go. And uh, mm. Ben was in it 100 percent from day one. You know, we just uh, we just had a ball. You know, I really enjoyed working with all of them. Mm, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting now because that's such a space where you're seeing more black creatives tell stories, you know, the thriller space. And it feels really like very ripe terrain, I think, um, for different types of stories to be told, both in the series form. Uh, we saw HBO, you know, did that recently. And then also we see what like 
someone like Jordan Peele is doing um, too. And it feels new, even though there's always been this interest, I think. Why does it feel new all of a sudden that we're seeing a number of Black creatives tell science fiction horror stories in this way right now? I think because there's more of them. Um, I like to think that I'm the first director to do a film where an African-American woman saves the world. Yeah. I did a movie called Demon Knight. Yeah. <laughs> Who saves the world in that movie? Jada Pinkett. But I think, um, you know, black folks have always been interested in, in fantastic literature uh, and, and the movies. Um, but I think now you see more and more people being able to express themselves through science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I find it so interesting that you very comfortably work both as a cinematographer and as a director. Um, and, you know, we work in an industry that loves you to stick to a lane, I think, a lot of times. But but you don't. And I, and I love it about you. Um, and one of your frequent collaborators is Spike Lee. Well, you mentioned earlier that you and Spike had talked about bringing the story of Malcolm X to life a long time ago, and you had said, there is no one else that he's going to make this film with but me. I absolutely have to do that. Is there something else out there looming that maybe you guys talked about um, when you were very, very young in your careers that maybe you would love to revisit and bringing that, that collaboration back? There were a couple of things. A couple of things we tried, uh, you know, some stuff that we wound up getting into legal problems with that weren't allowing us to do that. I mean, I actually was trying to get Man Child in the Promised Land made. Oh, wow. Uh, but it, it, it turned into a very complicated rights issues and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. um, And but, you and Spike wanted to do that together? Yeah, yeah. Talked about uh, doing that uh, first as a, as, a, as a feature and then as a possible limited series. So we could really, really tell the whole story out. And it would have been complicated because it would have been recreating Harlem in the late 40s. Mm. into the early 1960s. Um, but it was a really Im important part of, uh, of the African-American experience. Mm -hmm. So beyond that, uh, he's got this deal that he's going to be doing with Netflix. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing if there are some things we can do together. I'm sharing some scripts with him and, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. What are you looking for right now? I mean, what what's the next story that you would love to tell? Well, I'm... Uh, I'm working on several different projects. Mm -hmm. I'm hopefully going to get involved in doing a uh, an adaptation of a classic science fiction novel by Samuel Delaney. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm uh, working on that. Uh, we're in the early stages of a project on the, the life story of Duke Ellington. And right now we have interest in uh, from Jeffrey Wright playing Duke and uh, Alicia Keys playing Lena Horne. Really? So that's another thing we're looking at. Um, How soon might you get into into the field with that one? Well, we've got to get a writer. Okay. But right now, I'm uh, I'm outlining it the way I want the story to play, and then we'll bring in a writer to uh, to flesh it out. Okay. Um, and a horror film that my wife and I wrote called No Face. It always comes back to horror for you. Um, <laughs> let's just say cinefantastique. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, because, you know, that, that kind of broadly encompasses horror, it encompasses science fiction, uh, encompasses speculative fiction. Mm. Cinefantastique is, uh, is something I'm really interested in. 
All right. I like that. And I like you, Ernest Dickerson. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Now that he has said Jeffrey Wright and Duke Ellington, I can't unsee it. I need to see that film ASAP. So please get to work, Ernest Dickerson, on that. On the other side of the break, I'm going to sit down with a couple of my Hollywood Reporter friends to talk some more about Ernest Dickerson and the mark he's made on Hollywood. We're also going to go deeper on the rapper-turned-actor experience that Tupac and so many others have had. And we're also going to talk about who we want to see take home those pretty, shiny little trophies on Sunday at the Oscars. in my buds, Anthony Bresnikan, but you guys know I call him Brez, so uh, he's a Hollywood <laughs> correspondent for Vanity Fair. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be with you again, Kelly. I know, and I also want to bring in Carla Renata, who I don't have a personal nickname for, and that's probably because she has her own. She is the Kirby film critic. Carla, welcome back. Thank you, Miss Kelly. It is my pleasure to be back here with you. I want to talk about Ernest Dickerson's career at large, plus... We're going to give our final Oscars predictions before the show coming this Sunday. I am so excited Mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm going to be there. (laughs) And of course, we're going to get into some more Hollywood news of the week. I want to dive right in and and talk about Ernest Dickerson. What did you guys think of the interview? Uh, Smooth, cool, wonderful, all those things. I think you uh, drew him out and brought out a lot of really interesting insights into his journey. And I also think he's a guy whose full story isn't always known he's not somebody that we've who's overexposed and we've heard a lot about you know i kind of love him as a filmmaker and i'm particularly fascinated with the fact that he went from being a cinematographer to a director that is a fascinating journey to me particularly when he was speaking about when you talked to him about the new projects that he's working on and he was saying how he's going to craft it out first before they get a writer. That was fascinating to me because you don't normally hear a director, aka cinematographer, say that before getting a writer. I, I always have heard of having the writer write the script and then the cinematographer and the director collaborating to draft out what the image is going to be. But I was fascinated by that. And I kind of loved you all having that discussion. It was great. Yeah, you know, one thing that came out of that Ernest Dickerson conversation is the idea that lo and behold, rappers can act. I thought that it was really bold that he and John Singleton, both very early in their filmmaking careers, plucked guys who were really important to hip hop culture, who I don't know about you guys, but I never thought about what they would look like on film and how they would portray on film. Grabbed Ice Cube, grabbed Tupac, um, and put them on film. And we kind of discovered that that may be an untapped well of of talent to go into. What did you guys think? Um, Carla, I want to start with you on that because I used to have a policy where if there were more than two rappers in a film, I would not see it because it just, it probably... It probably wasn't something that was going to be holding my interest. But then things have things have changed, I think, a little bit for me. What about yourself? That's like the Bechtel test, but there's got to be another name for it, right? Like two more than two rappers talking about like this or that. You're, not, that you're out. That is hilarious. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I think about it. Because as someone who is also an actress, in addition to critiquing films and whatnot, I remember when, when that started to happen. 
the acting community was salty. They were not having it. They felt some Very, kind of way because we felt yeah. like, why are they taking our jobs? They're making money over here in the music industry. Stay in your lane. But mm -hmm. as we have seen mm -hmm. as time has gone on, we found out that Tupac was a really great actor. We found out that Ice Cube was a really great actor, not only in drama, but in comedy, because he was hella funny in that Friday series. My mother watches that every time yeah. it comes on TV. I'm like, bless. My all-time favorite movie. <laughs> all-time favorite movie. <laughs> but we did find out that that they can act. Now, there's one of them that's not so much, Ice-T. We saw him evolve as an actor because he didn't, sure. if you look at him in New Jack City and you look at him on Law & Order, there's a drastic difference between <laughs> what he was Very doing true. then and what he's doing now. But it's Very nice true. to see that there was growth there. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. Those three guys, it was Cube, it was Ice-T, and it was Tupac. Those were like the first rappers to get cast in films and not just get cast in films, but be cast as leads in films. And it was like a, a hold your breath moment for me, for all three of those films. And I wasn't even a critic. I was just a kid who was, you know, watching movies that I probably wasn't supposed to be watching at the time those movies came out. I know actors would be salty about they're trained in the theater, they're trained in performance, and they're mm -hmm. a little maybe uncool with rappers coming in. but. I I also can see like, well, maybe you're like Tupac's entry into film storytelling was through rap, was through rapping. And so people come to it from all different directions. And I think uh, it's a testament to Ernest Dickerson that he can see the talent. He can see the storytelling potential from people who come from a lot of different places and put them together in, in one story. Yeah. Anybody that can go from the brother from another planet to Malcolm X got my vote. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then the cool part in the interview was when he was like, yeah, I was finally getting my break as a director, but then Spike finally got Malcolm X like in a position where it was going to happen. And he's like, I'm going back to my original job of cinematography because I'm like, not I'm not letting somebody else shoot that. I'm not letting somebody else shoot that. I like that. I did too. Uh, guys, you know what? We can't have a conversation in Hollywood right now without talking about the power that is CODA. It is coming in strong at the end of award season. You're the girl with the deaf family? Yeah. yeah. I just want to tell you right now. And you sing. Interesting. I mean, just a few short weeks ago, it felt like Power of the Dog was a foregone conclusion that it would be getting that best picture uh, win. But here comes Coda with the big win out of the PGAs over the weekend. Uh, what do you guys think? I mean, is, is Coda going to be the last man standing uh, by the end of, uh, of Sunday evening? I think so. I do. Mm -hmm. You know, Coda is one of those films that is perceived as the underdog, and I can totally relate to that being a black woman in America. We're often considered the underdog, so that was a, a thing that was really relatable to me. And I also love the fact that Marley Matlin, who has won an Oscar as a deaf actress, is now on this trajectory and this journey with her co-star, Troy Kotzer, who is about to make history in the same manner in, as what she did. So it's really exciting to see that. And it's, and it's cool because maybe she, you know, has been talking to him about what this journey is like, telling him what to look for, telling him how to handle it. It's just, I, I just love everything about that. And I love everything about Troy Kotzer. I was able to sit down and interview him at the Oscar nominee luncheon, and I had never interviewed a deaf person before that moment. And hands down, he was one of the most animated 
you know, entertaining interviews that I've ever had over the course of my career. And I immediately shifted allegiances and became a Coda fan and became a Troy fan. I would love to see him at one point really um, not only clinch a victory, but have a really great career because he's been waiting a long time for a moment like this. So it's uh, it's been it's been pretty exciting, I think, to watch that that steam. Coda has humanity. It has heart. It has humor. It has drama. It has that coming of age thing happening. It has that perseverance thing happening. It has every emotion that you could possibly tap into that makes the audience feel some kind of way in that one single solitary film. I agree with everything Carla said about the beauty of it, the hopefulness of it, the sweetness of it, the family story. Uh, you know, there's all this talk about the power of the dog. I, and I think this is the power of the underdog, right? Coda <laughs> sneaking up behind you. <laughs> and, uh, ah, that's such and, a good uh, I will say, like, I've covered the Oscars for a lot of years. And they're, sometimes that they open that envelope and it is a surprise, you know? Yeah. Sometimes the film you think is going to win, it doesn't win. But there are certain years where there are juggernauts, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, like, 12 Years a Slave, Titanic. Yeah. Uh, the Return of the King, where everybody is just like, step aside, this movie's coming through. And then there are years where you're like, I don't know what it's going to be. Is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? It's probably going to be this. And then, you know, that front runner chugs along and wins and wins and wins. And then because there is a question, it's kind of like, oh, well, there's this buffet of films. This is a buffet of story. We've tried that enough. And I do think voters, you know, voters are just casting their ballots this week. It is very yeah. close. It is not like yeah. weeks ahead of the show where the ballots are no. cast. They're cast now. Yeah. And they yeah. might say, oh, well, that's enough of that film. Like that film has been clapped on the back. Maybe I'll vote for something else. Everything could change. And it does. And to your point, we have definitely seen those envelopes open and not hear the name we expected to call. But let's stay there with this conversation. I want to hear everybody's predictions. Who's going to take best actor? Best Actress and Picture. Carla, let's start with you. Okay, so I think Best Actor is Will Smith's to lose. He's been nominated, what, five times? He's lost to Denzel Washington numerous times. He's in a category with Denzel Washington again. And even Denzel Washington said to Will, I, brother, this is your time. And I concur. Mm. I think Best Actress is going to... I think this might be an upset category because for the longest time, people were saying it was going to be Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter. But in the last couple of weeks, just like Coda has emerged, so has Jessica Chastain emerged Absolutely. in the eyes of Tammy Faye. So yeah, I think this might be, I think this might be an Oscar to, to Anthony's point. This might be the year of the underdog. I mean, I think that Jessica Chastain might pull off an upset win here. Yes. Um, and as far yes. as best picture, my personal favorite for Best Picture is Belfast because I just mm -hmm. love it so much. But The Power yeah. of the Dog has consistently, you know, dropped the mic in that category. So it's more than likely going to walk away with um, Best Picture. But, you know, Coda and Belfast might bring up the rear. We never know. Or there might be a tie. Mm. All right, Anthony, you're up. I think uh, Will Smith is going to win. I think it's like he's well liked. It's a great performance. I'm totally confident in him. And, yeah. um, you know, in terms of like best picture, I love Belfast too. I think also the Oscars are a uh, populist group. When you think about how the individual branches vote for the films, 
you know, so cinematographers vote for nominate the cinematographers, directors nominate the directors, makeup artists nominate the makeup artists, actors nominate the actors. But when you get to the final vote, everybody votes. And so it doesn't matter what your specialty is. It's what movie moved you or made you the happiest or sticks with you. And the bigger that voting group, the more likely you are to just like kind of play the hits. So like, I don't, I don't think I'm not going to, again, I would not suggest Dune is going to take it for best picture, but I do think the potential for mystery and surprise is very high in that category, higher than most years could be Coda. Could, as Carla said, I love Belfast too. Sweet movie. That's an underdog, even to the underdog. Like if Coda's the underdog, I don't know. This is the under underdog, <laughs> but people might want that. And when it comes to best actress, I think something similar might be at play. Olivia Coleman is an astounding actress. She's also an Oscar winner. Sure. Jessica Chastain has yeah. been nominated many times. The Eyes of Tammy Faye. I thought that was a stunning performance. It made me feel empathy for a, for a human being that I did not have a lot of empathy for, if I'm being honest. I thought exactly. of Tammy Faye yeah. as a huckster. And the scene where <laughs> she is speaking to the man who has AIDS. And how sad is that? And we as Christians, who are supposed to love everyone, are afraid so badly of an AIDS patient that we will not go up to them and put our arm around them and tell them that we care. Gripping. Yeah. Yeah, like breaking the, the ex expectations of the entire world she was in. You know, this evangelical, yeah. money-grubbing world of televangelism she used it in a way that was human. I when I watched that, I immediately searched: Is this true? Did this really happen? Complete. And it really it, did. Same, it same. really did. I, I went down a complete rabbit yeah. hole, and that man is still living to this he day. He is. Too. He's still. Yeah. Alive. He is. He and still is alive. I, it yeah. made me feel a very different way about Tammy Faye, and I think like Jessica same. Chastain. I've interviewed her. I like her. I remember when she was up for Zero Dark Thirty, and she had such a great attitude that she didn't win. She was like, oh, I'm so relieved. Like, this is actually good because I don't want to win too early in my career. Like, oh, wow. Uh, she was, yeah, I don't think I'm giving anything away there because she was just like sort of very positive. She was having a great time at the party. And I think yeah. she knew I have the goods. I will be back. Well, she has mm -hmm. been back. And this, I think this is her time. I would give it to her. Yeah, no, I had an opportunity to sit down with her at the Oscar nominees luncheon a few weeks back. And I was like, girl, you could just act through a wall. And that's just what it is. She's like, oh, my God, thank you. But but to, to a surprise of no one listening to this, for me, it is hands down Jessica Chastain. Um, I think that she was very transformative as, as Tammy Faye. And also she was a producer. And so this is exceptionally important to her that she was able to repaint Tammy as an advocate and have people really rethinking that entire story. And that's what a really good film should do, I think, um, when you're talking about someone that was a real person. And also Will Smith, it's absolutely his. I, I was able to have another conversation with him at the luncheon. And I said to him, you know, if you win, actually, I think I said when you win, because at this point, I do think that it's a foregone conclusion. But I said, when you win, you will be the first rapper to collect an acting nomination. And this is absolutely for the culture. And it was like it had just dawned on him because he was like, oh, yeah, like you're Yes. And I was like, it only took about 40 some odd years. He was like, correct. I said, so remember that 
remember that. I thought that was great. And and best film for me today in this hour, in the second that we're recording it, is Coda. I really want to see Coda pull off that victory since my favorite film this season, which was The Tragedy of Macbeth, got no nomination for Best Picture. Carla Renata, Anthony Bresnikan, thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode. I really appreciate it. It is a pleasure to be here. I can't wait to see how the Oscars turn out and see how right we were. We'll, we'll do a victory lap, maybe. Uh. Exactly. <laughs> oh, listen, we are 1,000% right. I'm telling you, it was my pleasure to be here. Kelly, thanks so much for asking me back. Man, I always love talking Oscar predictions, especially with Brez and Carla. Thank you guys so much again for doing that. Next time on Close Up, it is our very special Academy Awards debrief show. I'm going to get back together with my Hollywood insider friends to dish about what it was like being on the red carpet, because you know I'm going to be there, what it's like sitting in those Dolby Theater seats, experiencing the magic firsthand, and importantly, what everybody was talking about at that private invite-only dinner that happens after the show, because you know your girl is going to be there. That's next time on Close Up. You won't want to miss it. And big thanks to all of you for listening. I really, really hope that you like what you've been hearing. And if you do, please rate and review the show and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Close Up is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Vika Aronson, Carrie Ann Thomas, and David Toledo, with help from Matt Wolf, Josh Cohan, Brenda Salinas Baker, Ariel Chester, Mary Pat Thompson, Elizabeth Russo, and Stacia Dashishku. Lakia Brown is our senior producer, and Liz Alessi is our executive producer.